All right. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Titus because that's where we're going to be. Uh, we're continuing our series uh, on singles in the church and uh, we're coming close to the end. But I just thought it would be good to uh, um, uh, just kind of address something that was kind of brought up. You've probably noticed that uh, the whole series is kind of interchange. It'd be good to kind of do like one 10 hour sermon, but we just can't do that without killing everybody. So we have to do it in pieces. But um, uh, we're trying to just help the singles that are coming into our church, and we have quite a few of them, to just give glory to God in their lives. And so we've been addressing different subjects, and this morning we get to the subject of how to help unmarrieds become marriageable. And uh, you'll see um, why we are addressing that topic in a moment. In the November-December 2004 issue of Psychology Today, which is a publication I wouldn't recommend, they did have uh, the rare good article in there that was called End- Endless Adolescence. You know, adolescence is uh, that uh, kind of supposed stage between childhood and adulthood. Uh, it's kind of the pupa stage, you know, uh, when they're little, they're worms and they're trying to become butterflies. And then in the middle, they kind of just turn into a pupa. And a lot of times, uh, adolescence becomes kind of the excuse, the justification for not expecting young men and young women to act like adults. You know, adolescence is, a, is not a biblical term. There are children in the Bible and then young men and young women and older men and older women and that's it. There is an expecting that you would start living like an adult. Of course, you probably know that in the Jewish society, when you became 12, you became the man of the covenant. Start living for God. And and I think this whole idea of adolescence, a lot of times, um, gives parents an excuse to not really treat their young men and young women in their household as young men and women but as this nebulous category of pupating adolescence where they just kind of are dormant for a long time. And this is what the article in Psychology Today was discussing. The article notes in one point, quote, the end result of cheating childhood is to, is to extend it forever. Despite all the parental pressure and probably because of it, kids are pushing back in their own way. They're taking longer to grow up. Adulthood no longer begins when adolescence ends. There is, instead of growing no man's land of post-adolescence from 20 to 30, which they dub early adulthood, those in it look like adults but haven't become fully adult yet. Traditionally defined as finishing school, landing a job with benefits, marrying and parenting because they are not ready or perhaps not permitted to do so. Using the classic benchmarks of adulthood, 65% of males had reached adulthood by the age of 30 in 1960. Contrast that in 2000, only 31% had. Among women, 77% met the benchmarks of adulthood by age 30 in 1960. By 2000, the number had fallen to 46%. End quote. Well, think about that. That's kind of scary, isn't it? That less than one third of men 
and less than one half of women haven't yet become adults by age 30. And since that's the average, there's a lot on the other side of the average that maybe don't make it until they're 35, 40, 45, 50. Kind of acting like an adult. Think about that. What are the 69, almost 70% of young men and 54% of the women doing from the time they graduate until they're 30 or 35 or 40? You ever thought about that? Well, many are living at home and indulging in the world and taking it easy during the most productive times of their life. During that time when they have health and they have energy and they can really work hard for the kingdom of God and to establish families, they're taking it easy. They're on retirement. If they do work hard, it's usually not for the Lord, but for themselves, for the God of this world, for Satan. You know, they sit by the hour or watching TV or playing video games or surfing the Internet and wasting time while their parents make excuses for them. Well, you know, um, he's only 38. I know he's living at home. He'll grow up eventually. Eagles kick their young out of the nest. The young man who maybe is working hard, you know, he just wants to like get stuff. The fast car, the fast woman, lots of gadgets. And, you know, the young woman wants to have a career and show that she can be a man and make lots of money and not going to waste her life being a housewife. I mean, that would just be a total waste. I'm not going to raise my own children. I don't even want children. And both young men and women are often becoming slaves to their flesh and fashion and food and fame and almost zero are making it to marriage, having maintained purity. And when you step back and you look at the big picture, you see that there is this huge battle raging against young people and the family and marriage as God designed it. And on most fronts, it seems like we're losing the battle. However, in the midst of the smoke of the battle and the darkness and the carnage of the battlefield, there is hope, and that hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because when a person comes to know Christ, they then receive the enlightenment, as we sing about, the Holy Spirit opens up their mind to the truth. They begin to understand the truth. They have the grace of God to obey the truth and they enter into the church, which helps them become fit for marriage, for parenting, for life as a Christian in the world. And what we're seeing at Calvary Bible Church is a lot of singles are coming in from the outside because they're basically ravished by sinful indulgence. They come into the church beat up, used up, hurting, looking for answers. Most of them do not come from Christian homes. Most of them have never seen a God-honoring Christian marriage, have no idea what that looks like, Has no have no idea what it means to have a Christian home. It's just, they have no idea. Zero comes to their mind when the concept comes up. 
They have never seen it. They've never experienced it. They've been bombarded by the world in ungodly images and ungodly ways of doing things. And they're really confused. They, they, don't, know, they don't know. But what, what they do know is they want something else. They want to have purpose. They want to have meaning. And they don't want to trash their lives forever. They want to live for the glory of God. But they just don't know what that means. And since many of them have plunged themselves into immorality, we have talked about just immorality, its problems and its cures. And that one of the cures, Paul says, is to get married. For those who don't have the gift of singleness, one of the the protections against immorality, not a cure, but just a protection is is marriage. So he says, get married. Now, you know. Some of you girls probably keenly feel this when, you you know, you read your Bible and it says, you know, you need to get married or when it's talking about, you know, widows, you know, who aren't over 60. You know, I want those widows to get married. And you're going, well, I'm waiting. Where is he? Where's the guy, the godly guy that's coming after me? You know, it's like, here I am. And a lot of times there isn't anybody. Nobody comes. And if they do, they're not really fit. Now, what are you supposed to do? Compromise? Well, no. So it's a problem. Not to say that all the women have their act together either. So this is what I want to discuss this morning. I want to talk about how do we, as a church, help the singles that God has given us become, you know, marriageable. You know, practice those basic godly disciplines and live lives that are glorifying to God rather than just kind of wasting themselves in the world. It's going to be scary in the next generation if the church doesn't get busy helping the singles because they are the next generation. They're the leaders of the church. The next generation of moms and dads and workers. And so we need to do something if we're going to help this situation out. And so that's what we want to look at this morning from Titus chapter 2, and if we've just read the book, so you understand the context pretty well. Um, Paul has this faithful disciple named Titus that he calls his true child in the faith, his, his partner, his fellow worker, his son, his brother. They're close. He leaves Titus on the island of Crete to kind of get that new church plant established there. Titus is facing all sorts of problems, so he writes this book because he wants the people on Crete, the Christians, to engage in good deeds and not just go, oh, great, I'm saved, and then stagnate or wander back into the world. He wants them to get on with following Christ. And so he starts off at the beginning of the chapter in verse 5, talking about the qualifications for leaders. Why? Because you can't have a healthy church if you don't have healthy leaders. The church never rises above the level of its leaders. You have to have God-honoring, faithful, humble, godly men leading the church, because if you don't have that, you can't have a healthy church. And so he gives the qualifications right off the bat. These are the kind of men that need to lead. And then he talks about these rebellious men, these empty talkers, these false teachers and deceivers who need reproved, rebuked, and if necessary, rejected from the church because they're upsetting entire families and causing havoc in the church. And so the shepherds need to get them out. Having 
said that, having described these who profess to know God in verse 16, but with their deeds deny him being detestable, disobedient and worthless for any good deed. He then begins to give positive instruction on how the church is to function. Now, I'm going to pretty much focus all the application on singles. It's pretty much for the whole church, but I'm going to focus it on singles because it's a single series. So if you're wondering about you, you'll just have to pretend you're a single and then you can get it right between the eyes. But look here at chapter 2, verse 1, and follow along as I read these eight verses again. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to encourage Uh, to love their children, to be sensible, to be pure workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, I urge young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Now, I just want you to know, if you were to like dare me to preach from this text for a year, no problem. This thing is loaded. And so we're just going to kind of just skim through it, plucking out some basic concepts. We can't develop anything major, but I want to just focus all the application in relationship to the singles in the church. I want to point out four ways the church can help singles become marriageable so that they can be fit husbands and wives and fathers and mothers and followers of Jesus Christ. And the first is this, older men be examples of godliness. Look at chapter 2, verse 1, where he says, but as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. This is such a neat, I love this, I love this. This is just so tempting to just like camp out here and burrow in. You know, like a tick on a Tennessee hound. Um, you know, a lot of times when you think of doctrine, what comes to your mind? You know, big heady terms, you know, supra, infra, and sublapsarianism. <laughs> the order of divine decrees, man's harmardiological anthropocentric bent towards depravity. Propitiation. You know, things like that, big words like, man, you know, big, fat, dusty books that no one reads. They were written by some mental guy who wrote them for other mental people who read those things. And a lot of times doctrine, we just don't, it's just not, you know, we think of it as being all this heady technical data. You know what? Some of it is. But Paul says, Titus I want you to teach the things that are fitting for sound doctrine. And I want you to note the kind of things he talks about. Now he's going to talk about being godly men and women, husbands and wives. That is doctrine. Doctrine, the word doctrine means teaching. And a lot of people have this idea, well, I don't really like doctrine. Well, then you don't want to honor God because all the way through the pastoral epistles, pastors are told to teach and preach sound doctrine. The church must have a never-ending flow of sound doctrine. Otherwise, the church can't be what God wants it to be. And so he says, speak the things that are fitting for sound doctrine, and let's see what this sound doctrine is. Older men are to be temperate. 
This word temperate means sober, not addicted to substances, not, not a drunkard. Older men, we don't want you addicted to things. We just want you to be sober of mind, temperate. Not only that, look at the middle of verse 2. They are to be dignified, a word that means honest and respectful. Somebody you want to go to, you know, one of those grandpa types that you just want to talk to because they're just so encouraging and wonderful, dignified. And not only that, but verse two says older men are to be sensible, a word that means to be, again, temperate and self-controlled and discreet and sound of mind. They're not, you know, conspiracy theories and not, you know, talking about things that don't really matter all the time, but having a sound mind that's focused on the glory of God and the love of God and the love of other people. And also, verse 2 says that they be sound in faith. And, and the word sound here is, is talking about um, really the same thing. Faith is just another synonym for doctrine. Faith is like everything that encompasses Christianity. So, Titus, I want you to speak the things that are fitting for sound doctrine and tell the old men to have sound faith or doctrine too. Which means older men need to be studying the word of God and have wholesome, fit Christian faith and doctrine. Look again at verse 2. They are to live in love. That, that unconditional Love that all Christians are to have for each other, doing what is best for other people according to the word of God. You, you, as an older man, are to be showing people by example, by deed, how to love other people, serving them, helping them, encouraging them, rebuking them, being that old, faithful person in the body of Christ. And finally, verse 2 says, old men are to live in perseverance, in steadfast endurance and long-term faithfulness. In other words, they aren't to just, you know, live their godly life for a time. And then after a while, you go on vacation. You know, get a motor home and check out. You know, I served when I was young. And now that I'm old, you know, you don't expect me to keep obeying God, do you? I obeyed God when I was young. But now that I'm old, I'm going back into the world. I'm serving God less. I'm loving God less. I'm loving the sheep yet less. You know, that's what the world says to do. That's not what God says. He has a persevering love in serving the body of Christ. You know, I'll let you decide if you fit into the old man category or not. But if you do, you need to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith and love and perseverance. And do not be deceived. The younger generation is watching you. I mean, think about this. If you've been a Christian for a while, you probably know older men that have been a blessing to you. Can you think of some? Just some of them that were just always wonderful, that are just so great, uh, and children are watching you. The young people are watching you, older men, because you are the gray hairs, the, the, the patriarchs, the ones who have walked with the Lord, and they're looking at you to see how you live your life. You see, if Christians are, as the Word of God says, slowly being transformed in the image of God from one glory to the next, then when you get old, you should be significantly more like who? Christ. And so if I look at a, somebody who's walked with the Lord a long time, it's like that is the example. 
And so what would the church be like if everyone was just like you? See, that's the question. You're teaching by your example. You know, and, and it's not like you need to like formally sit down and necessarily instruct somebody, although it'd be fine. But just being a godly man teaches other people things like you know we know dear old john livingston who went to be with the lord a while back and and everybody knows that you know he was really old in his 90s and he would come coming in he had cataracts and all these aches and pains and he wouldn't talk about his aches and he wouldn't talk about his pains but when you say john how are you doing what would he say what would he say god is good yeah Have you ever got that blessing from John Livingston? God is good. And you're thinking, so how is that? You're all crunched over. You can't see. You can barely stand up straight. You can't stand up straight. You're shuffling around. You know, you've got one and a half feet in the grave. Whoa, what's going on here with the good part? And you begin to learn that this guy loves the Lord so much, he realizes he's going to die. Of course he's going to die, but he's going to soon be with the Lord and everything's going to be great. And so he just praised God and praised God. Just by that little example, he was able to be a blessing to so many people. He taught us things, didn't he? And he didn't have his own Sunday school class. He was just a faithful man of God. Yesterday, I went to a, 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 a celebration for Dr. Robert Thomas, who is considered probably the foremost Greek scholar, New Testament Greek scholar in the world. And he has been teaching seminary for 50 years. And so they had a little celebration and these, these old men got up there and, and gave him some words of encouragement. And um, his younger pastor talked about how intimidating it was to go to the church with Dr. Robert Thomas sitting out there with his you know, Greek text following along as you, you read every day. And, you know, uh, that's kind of scary. But what was neat about it is when he got up there at the end, he said, thank you. He gave all the glory to God and just say, well, I just want to keep serving God as long as he wants. He enables me to. He says, you know, if I get too sick and I can't do it anymore, that's fine. But, you know, I'd rather die in the harness. There's no thought of retirement. Retirement from what? Your calling? From giving God glory? Now that you have all these skills and all these abilities, you're going to like retire? Not even close. He just talked about, I'm going to keep serving God as long as I can. Faithful Plugging away, plugging away, serving the Lord, training men for ministry. Some of you are deceived into thinking you have nothing to offer the younger generation just because you don't know how to use a cell phone and you don't have a computer. Listen, you have plenty to teach the younger generation. You know how to hold a job and you know how to deal with a difficult boss and you know how to go through hard times. You know, you can tell them about when you went through the depression. You know, you can tell them about all the changes in technology and how they've been a blessing and how they've been a curse and and how you raised your kids and the things you did right and the things you did wrong. And I mean, you have so much information in your head that you don't even have to prepare You just have it. It just comes out in conversation. If you could just get close to a young person, you could bleed on them some of that wisdom. It would be so great. It would be so great. 
The singles of Calvary Bible Church need to know what you know. And so you need to go after them. And singles, you need to seek out those older people for advice. You know, you're getting ready to start a business. Why not maybe talk to a guy who was in business for 40, 50, 60 years and say, what do you think? You know, he might have something to teach you. Maybe. Yeah, ask. You know, you don't have to learn everything by personal experience. It's always best to learn by the wisdom of others. It's less painful and costly. And so we need the older men to be examples and to impart their wisdom to the younger. Secondly, we need older women to be examples of godliness. Look at verse three, older women. And again, I'll let you women decide if you are into that in that category. There might not be anybody here this morning um, there, but it, we know of older women back east, I'm sure. Says likewise are to be reverent in their behavior. That is living holy, respectable lives of godliness. You know the Proverbs thirty-one woman, the the First Peter three woman, and look also at verse three. Not malicious gossips. This is a interesting term here, because this is the word diabolos, the word we get devil from. I don't want the women to be devil speakers, demon speakers, no demon speech. It's like, what's that? Well, women, because they're verbal and they're relational, find strong temptations in the area of, did you hear about so-and-so? No kidding. I thought... No, I heard from so-and-so and and she's heard from so-and-so and and we were talking the other day. Now you can go talk to her if you want, but I'm not supposed to tell anybody. (laughs) And they just thrive off of that gossip and that relational stuff. It just is like these little dainty morsels are just almost impossible to resist. The problem is that's what he describes here as demon speak. And the older women are not to be demon gossipers. I've watched godly women who had the perfect opportunity to share something about somebody, some negative truth, some sin, something that was absolutely true. And when it came up and it was like T-ball and this perfect opportunity to say, well, I know they're just kind of eyebrow popped up a little bit and they smiled and said nothing. Ah, how the younger generation of women needs to learn that. They need to learn that. To not be those gossipy, busybodies that go around. And you know what? You know, when you have things like Facebook and stuff, sometimes those that can be forums for that kind of stuff. You know, they all of a sudden you type in something, not about yourself, about somebody else. And pretty soon you're realizing, you know, I don't know if I should be doing that or not. Let them tell somebody else. Especially if it's anything demeaning, you know, something encouraging, something that, yeah, go ahead. But be careful. And the older women are to make sure that they aren't demon speakers because the younger women are watching you to see if you use self-control in your speech. Not only that, look again at verse 3. They are not to be enslaved to much wine either. You know, in that time, there wasn't a whole lot of things to drink. You had water and wine and milk and strong drink and virtually everybody, you know, drank Wine, you know, today you go in the grocery store, you got a whole giant two aisles full of drinks and then drinks spread out all over the store. You got hundreds of things to drink. But back then it wasn't that way. And so 
a lot of people drank either wine and or wine mixed with water because there was just a not a lot of options. Well, of course, the danger in that is alcohol leads to drunkenness if you drink too much. And so if you're going to drink that, you would have to use self-control to make sure you didn't become drunk. Well, some weren't using self-control and over the course of time they became enslaved to their substance and you know it could be wine it could be drugs it could be whatever it is you look in your life and you ask yourself is there a substance controlling me now if you're saying well no that's what everybody says who's addicted to a substance they all say no when you first ask them oh i don't do very much i don't drink very much i don't take very much of that they all say that And then what happens is, is when you begin to look at their life, this is what happens. They start taking something, maybe for a good reason, they use self-control or whatever, and then all of a sudden they, they realize, this kind of brings me some pleasure. This kind of gives me something I like. And so over the course of time, they begin to start thinking about how they're gonna plan their week or they begin to anticipate having that thing because it gives them that pleasurable experience. And then after a time, if they don't catch that it's beginning to master them, soon it begins to take over their life more and more, and they begin to actually arrange their life around their substance. Then they begin to make excuses for it, and if somebody comes and confronts them, they blame that person for their substance abuse, and then they blame circumstances in their life, and they blame everybody else, and pretty soon they start losing their friends and losing their family, and it's everybody else's fault, but it's not theirs. And they're enslaved. And this is when people who love them intervene. And if one doesn't work, you go with another person until they realize, okay, okay, I've got a problem. Go after them. And so older men are to make sure they look at their lives. If there anything in your life that you just has control of you, then stop. And if you can't, then get somebody to help you. Finally, look at the end of verse three. Older women are to be teaching what is good. Notice there is no qualification here. No qualification. You're an older woman, teach what is good. You think, well, I, I, I hate getting up in front of people and just talk to somebody in the foyer there. Teach them what is good in the foyer. Have them over to your house for tea. You know, go out for a cup of coffee or lunch or whatever. You know, just... Go out and teach them what is good. Older women, the younger women are watching you. You are an example to them. The question is, what kind of an example are you? Is your household an example of a well-managed household? Is your life an example of a well-managed life? Is your husband an example of a well-loved husband? Your children an example of well-trained children? These are the kinds of things you need to be imparting to the younger women so that they know how to do what you've figured out. And I know some of you are probably thinking to yourself, Pastor Jack, listen, man, I'm still trying to figure it out. I have blown it so many times. My children, you know, aren't what they should be. And I know it's partly my fault. I haven't loved my husband like I should. I haven't served the ministry like I said. Well, you're the perfect person to talk to him. You can tell him all the things you did wrong. You can sit him down and say, you know what? I didn't train my children when they were young like I should have. And now I'm paying the price. Whatever you do, start young. 
And you know what? When my children were young, I made them an excuse not to get involved in church. And you know what? I would never do that again. And you know what? I wasted a lot of time and I never was consistent with my Bible reading all through this period until I finally became. And now I wish I could go back and gain all those years of blessing that I forfeited because I was just undisciplined. So you need to get this in your life and then train them from your mistakes and train them from your successes. Impart to them those things that you have learned and help them hold their hand, give them feedback so that you can be a blessing to the body of Christ. That's what is sound doctrine. That is sound doctrine. Older women help those younger women. And if you're out there thinking, I don't know. I don't know if that's me. Are you sure that's what the text is saying? I am absolutely sure because the next point, look at verse four, younger women receive instruction from who? Older women. Look at verse four. The reason the older women are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good is so they, if they have the character, so they have the respect to encourage the young women, to encourage, to come alongside them, to help them be sober, to restore them to their senses, to admonish them and encourage them. That's what the word means. Older women, it means that you need to go after those young women and young women, you need to let yourself be caught by the old women. When all of a sudden you, some older woman says, I'd like to have tea with you. (laughs) And then you need to say, okay. And, um, and then show up and then she's just get ready for the gentle two by four. Look at the middle of verse four, teach them to love their husbands, encourage the women, young women to love their husbands. This is the first category. This is a great word. And this is a great word because it's the word. It's a word that only appears once in the New Testament. It's the word for love tacked on to the word for husband. It means husband lover. Now, what's cool about it is, is in most of the almost all the cases in the New Testament, you have the word agape. Type love. It was used earlier in the text, that unconditional type of love, the love that God loves us with, that self-sacrificing love that does what is best for others according to the word of God. That's not the word tacked on to husband here. The word tacked on here is philos. The word we get like brotherly love, a deep friendship, a close relationship. He's, she's, uh, um, the older woman is basically to be teaching the younger woman to be their husband's best friend. Think about that. To go to the lumber yard with them. That's how my wife's my best friend. I love her when she goes to the lumber yard with me. I know she's only there for one reason. And that's because she loves me. She doesn't want to look at the A2 shop grade birch plywood. Um, yeah, to to be your husband's best friend. And so... Older women talk to the younger women since guys are, you know, uh, different than women and, and younger women a lot of times are clueless about this to t- teach them that guys are this way. Guys kind of, I think they kind of think this way. Um, they act this way. They like these kind of things. Don't expect them this. They, they, they don't work that way. Um, 
hot, salty meat. They like lots of hot, salty meat. Um, you know, things like that. You tell them, you know, whatever it is. Uh, you know, what you, whatever, whatever you've learned uh, about loving your husband, what, what makes your husband feel loved and how you become close friends and what you do together and why you never, ever hang wallpaper together and things like that. Um, <laughs> you, you, you teach them the things you've learned. So that those young women don't have to learn everything by the school of hard knocks. I mean, you don't want to sit back as an older woman and say, oh, there she goes into the minefield. <laughs> After she gets blown up, she'll learn a thing or two. No, why don't you stop them from going out there and say, before you go on out there, um, let me tell you some things. And you know what? All of you older women have plenty to teach the younger women without even having to prepare. You just need to do what you've learned over the years through the school of hard knocks so that they don't have to do the same thing. And not only that, to love their children. And this is a similar word. This word philos, this affectionate friendship type love attached to children, a children lover to be deep, close friends with your children. Young women need to realize, because you know what, well, you know what happens is, is when kids are little, sometimes, you know, it feels like all you tell them is don't, stop, no, no. Mommy says, no, don't touch, come here, sit down, eat your peas. You know, just like everything, it's just, you know, doesn't it just, sometimes you just feel like, I just need a break. You know, it's like everything is instructions. No, stop, no. And you can kind of develop this kind of negative aura as you're raising your children and you, you don't become friends and pretty soon, you know, you're snarling at each other and no. Older women, you need to sit down and say, you just need to love them. And this is how you love them. And this is how you become your ch- a close friend with your children so they can confide in you and tell you their problems so they aren't talking to other people and going to ungodly sources. Be your children's friend. It doesn't mean you have to stop being an authority and stop being a mother. He's not saying that. But in the process of being an authority and being a mother, be your child's close friend. And you older women have a lot of wisdom to impart to the younger women on how to be close friends with your children. And that's what God wants you to do. Not only that, look at verse five. Older women are to teach the young women to be sensible. This is really an adjective form of a word encourage in verse four. And it's that uh, to live a curbed, self-controlled, discreet, temperate life. To not be a life of flash and and extreme, but self-control. The whole idea is a mastery of oneself. Older women, you need to teach those younger women what you've learned about mastering your life, mastering your tongue, mastering your household, your finances, your desires. Those, that's the idea. And not only that, look at verse 5. They are also to teach the younger women to be pure. This word pure is sexual purity. It's, it's being pure in the way young women speak, the way they act, and the way they dress. In other words, you need to teach the young women not to be flirtatious in their speech and conduct and their dress, to dress modestly, not immodestly, to not be using their bodies to attract attention to themselves, to cause other people to stumble, to try and find somebody who loves them for their mind by using their body. It just doesn't work that way. And so you older women need to say, you know what? 
this is a proper way to dress. Don't dress this way. Don't do this. Don't go there. Don't act that way. When you're around a young man, don't, don't, do, do. And you teach. You teach by exhortation, by example, from the wisdom that you've learned. You know what? It's good not to do this. To have that purity. Young women must be taught not to be proud or vain about their looks and their bodies because it's a huge temptation. I mean, that's why a lot of women dress the way they do. It's because they're proud of their physical form. And so they parade it in front of others, just like a young man might get a sports car and take off the muffler and drive around or drive around with their stereo blasting, thinking other people want to listen to their music. They're attracting attention to themselves. It is a statement of pride and vanity. Not only that, the older women need to be teaching the younger women to be, look at it there, workers at home. Mm. A lot of people wish this verse wasn't in the Bible. They just wish this thing was cut out of here. But look at it there. God wants younger women to be workers at home. So the older women need to be teaching the younger women to be workers at home. What workers at home means in the Greek is workers at home. To be cookers and cleaners and laundry persons. Oh no, are you sure? I'm sure of it. Yeah, I'm sure of it. To be taking care of your children and taking care of your husband. To work, giving priority preference to your home. And the young women of today sends all, pretty much all the TV shows, all the magazines, all the advertisement, all they see in the world tells them to neglect their husbands, neglect their children, and neglect their home. They need to be taught that is antithetical to the Word of God. That God wants women to be workers at home. Now you say, well, does that mean they can like never get a job outside the home? No, that does not mean that. I mean, if you look at Proverbs 31, what do you see the Proverbs 31 woman doing? Well, she's making belts and selling them. What else is she doing? Well, she's doing a little investing. She's buying some property. She's planting a vineyard. She's making money. Why? So she can get big furs and gold and jewelry and junk destined to perish? No. So she can be gracious to the poor. So she can contribute to her family. And she doesn't pay anybody to raise her children. She doesn't pay anybody to love her husband. She gets up before it's light. She works hard. She feeds. She clothes. And then in her spare time, she's so diligent. She also invests and engage in business outside the home, but never to the neglect of her home. The home always comes first. So to be a worker at home doesn't mean to only work at home. It means to make your home, your children, your household a priority. A woman is to manage well her home as a first priority and not neglect it. We have a lot of young women today who are neglecting. They don't even want to be home. They don't even want to be married and they don't want to have children as because it's hindering their pursuit of their career and fame and money-making or whatever. And so many young women need an attitude adjustment and older women, you do it. God wants you to do it. I mean, I'll do it a little bit, but you do it more than me. In addition to that, look at verse 5. They also to, oh, 
yeah, look at verse five again. And we have the word kind. This is joyful, happy, excellent, honorable. So as they're, they're doing the role that God has called them to do as they're being that worker at home and that husband lover and child lover, they need to be joyful, kind, happy campers. Not, I have to be at home and changing diapers all day. It's just like the sink just breeds the dirty dishes and the, the hamper breeds clothing. It just go. Oh, I keep doing it. It never ends. Never, never, never. No. No. And you know what? You just got to get to the place in your life where you realize this is my lot in life. And not only be content with your lot in life, but to pursue it with excellence and joy because all the labors we have the scriptures say are given to us by God that we would enjoy them and give him glory through them not only that verse 5 says they also need to be subject to their own husbands oh there's another one that the world would just love to have that out of there but that's what it says the word subject means to voluntarily arrange yourself around somebody else. So the woman, realizing the husband is the head of the family, arranges herself around her husband to encourage him to do what he's supposed to do, and she willingly submits to his leadership. Now, if you're out there thinking, oh, Pastor Jack, that, what if he's imperfect? What, what if he makes mistakes? You know, what if... I think I could lead the family better than him. What if I know I could? You know, what if my husband is disobedient to the word? What if he's an unbeliever? Same instruction. Submit, submit, and submit. The scriptures say wives are to submit as unto the Lord. Submit in everything. That's pretty comprehensive, isn't it? The only time where a woman isn't supposed to submit to her husband is if that husband tells her to sin against God because it must be right and fitting in the Lord, as Colossians 3.18 says. And so you need to teach those younger women, especially the really gifted and talented ones. Those really able women, and we've got them, who just can like, you know, juggle 10 kids keep the house, teach Bible study, you know, super women to submit to their husbands. And a lot of times opposites attract. So oftentimes you get the type A woman, you know, who's like the Ferrari. And then you got the guys like the 52 Ford pickup. <laughs> he's kind of just da, 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 da. And then he's got the wife, man. He's like, vroom, vroom, you know, and that woman needs to Learn to submit to her husband, to defer to her husband. Honey, what would you like me to do? And just allow him to lead. To teach the younger women. It has nothing to do with a woman's ability. It has nothing to do with a woman's value. It has everything to do with God's assigned role to husbands and wives. And that's it. So teach the younger women to submit to their husbands. And then why... Do the younger women need to be trained by the older women to do all these things? Look at the end of verse 5, so that the word of God would not be dishonored. The word of God would not be dishonored. This word dishonored is to blaspheme. It's kind of interesting that the word of God would not be blasphemed. Well, you think, well, how could, 
how can the word of God be blasphemed? I thought God was blasphemed. You know, I thought if you spoke irreverently of God, disrespectfully of God, that was blasphemed. But, but you know, how can you dishonor the Bible? You see, if I were to like, you know, this bulletin right here, if I just say, well, that's dumb font. I don't like that song. This isn't a good order. Okay, if I spoke disrespectfully of the bulletin there, I wouldn't be blaspheming the bulletin because the bulletin isn't God. But if I speak disrespectfully of this book, I blaspheme God because this is the word of God. This is not some book that tells us about God and some some work of man Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So when this book speaks, God speaks. So to dishonor this book is to dishonor, to blaspheme God himself. And that is why young women need to be taught those things. So that when they're out in the world saying, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Christ. And people are looking at them and they're going, well, she's not dressed modestly. I thought she was a Christian. Oh, she's not treating her kids right. I thought she was a Christian. Oh, she's gossiping. I thought she was a Christian. Then who do they attack? The God that that woman says she serves. They blaspheme God by disobeying the word of God. And so that is why old women need to train the younger women. And so we need to be extra careful to make sure that as a church, you older women are busy doing your thing, being your example, and also pursuing those younger women and helping them become the women they need to be. And not only that, fourth and finally, younger men, and you didn't think you were going to escape, were you? Receive instruction. Look at verse six. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible, a word that means self-control, curbing one's desires, sound of mind, temperate. You know, if there was ever anything that young men needed is this just to rein in their flesh. Young men have energy. They're hungry. They're after pleasure. They're after entertainment. Their flesh is crying out for it because it cries out for all. And young men need to say no, even to things that are good just for the discipline's sake of saying no to those things which might bring them pleasure so they can be sensible, temperate, so they can brain their flesh in is really what it is. You know, they can enjoy things, but they need to make sure they're in control of their flesh and their flesh isn't in control of them. Not only that, look at verse 7. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds. So young men All God wants you to do is in all things, show yourself an example of good deeds. Listen, when you're young, when you're a young man, you have energy, you have health. And, you know, once you get, you know, if I go out there and I play basketball with some young guys, I want to like cough up a lung. (laughs) And they're all sweaty and they're darting around like, you know, hyperactive ants. And then, you know, I just want to like collapse and take Advil for three days and recover. And they just drink a glass of water and go, I'm back. You want to play some more? I, you know what? They have energy, right? They're young. It's, it's the most productive, energetic time of life when they have the most stamina and the most endurance. 
And so it is necessary to teach young men not to be sitting on the couch, watching video games, wasting their life surfing the internet, talking about sports statistics all the time. When they can take that energy, when their minds are fresh, their bodies are healthy, when they have endurance and stamina to use it for the Lord, to act like adults and serve in the church. And not make excuses for them. Well, he's, he's only 33. He'll get, he'll serve eventually when he moves out. When's he going to do that? Well, he's looking for a wife. Well, who would have him? <laughs> See, those are the kinds of things that we need to do. We need to tell our, our kids when they're home as we're raising them up. Listen, we serve. When we come to church, we serve. Where are you going to serve? Find a place to serve. I'll help you find a place to serve. You serve, you serve, you serve. Get involved in children's ministry. Get involved doing something. Serve. Everybody serves. Why? Because that's what Christians do. That's what adults do. And we do it until we die. And so younger men are to show themselves to be examples in good deeds in everything. Think of that. Not just doing good deeds, but examples. So that those younger, or the older people look at the younger people and look at those young men and go, man, that young man is really going hard for the Lord. That's what you want to get to. That young man is really respectful. Notice how he opened the door. Notice how he spoke with kindness. Notice how he looked me in the eye. Notice how he acted like an adult. And so parents, train your children to do that. And young men, you seek to do that and seek out the older people if you don't know how to do that. Not only that, do it with purity and doctrine look at the middle of verse 7 do it with purity and doctrine and the whole idea here is that young men are to be men of the book bible gluttons bible gluttons think about that i mean you know you go up to the average guy and say hey you know tell me uh tell me the books of the bible i i i i don't know well tell me um tell me about the gospel. Tell me how to share your faith. I don't know. Listen, that's every Christian should be that way. Young men need to be encouraged to read good books, to know systematic theology, doctrine, church history, you know, things that matter. So while their minds are all soft, they can suck that stuff up. I mean, you know, if you guys have been in their relationship class, it's sickening. Well, those young men, I have a couple at my house. They go, oh, you know, five minutes before class, I got to memorize my verses. Okay, I got them. You know, I've been all week going through, going through, going through, trying to get that. Let love be without hypocrisy. Um, you know, and they can just like suck it up. They just, Shh. and so man, when their minds are that fresh and they have that much energy, you can say, hey, why don't you read this biography? Read this book here. Do this thing over here. Try this here. Let's talk about this. Let's meet. Go to Bible study. Encourage. Go to this conference. I want you to go here. Encourage him to get exposed to the word. Listen to sermons. Do it. Develop those patterns in your life so their mind is full of the books. So if you cut them, like Spurgeon says, they bleed Bible. And they are also to be dignified. That is, a person entitled to reverence, respect, and dignity. Not to be flippant and irreverent and you know young men who are just out there joking around dinking around all the time they're to be dignified 
You say, are you sure? Yeah, that's what it says right there in verse 7. Not only that, having speech which is beyond reproach. That is speech, that when, you, when it says beyond reproach, this is like the word that's used of elders. Speech that is, is so wholesome that you can't accuse them of any, saying anything bad. It's have Teflon speech. Nothing sticks to it. No accusation sticks. Have a young man who speaks so clearly, so honorably, so respectfully that you can just, it's a, you just can't accuse that person of anything bad in their speech. And you say, why? Well, we saw why the young women needed to do it, right? So the word of God would not be blasphemed. Well, look what he says in the middle of verse 8. So that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Who is the opponent? Well, everybody's guessed. It just doesn't say. It could be Satan. I think it means anybody who's opposed to Christianity. When a young man says he's a Christian, he needs to live like one. Why? Because if he doesn't, it will give the opponent ammunition to shoot at Christ. To say, well, I don't know, you know, I don't know, you Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. I one time you knew a young man that I worked with out of my place, and, and uh, he called him a Christian, but he did. And now all of a sudden they're using it. They're firing missiles at Christ given to them by a believer who didn't live for the glory of God. Do you remember how John described young men in 1 John 2.14? He says this, And you young men, ask yourself if this is you. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. Is that you? That's what we need to help all the young men to become strong, to have the word of God abiding in them so that they learn how to overcome the evil one. That's the goal. And so when you look at all of this and you look at the old man, old women, young men, young women thing in this whole text, what do we have here? This is what we have. The entire church, whether you're old or young, all takes responsibility for one another and all work together to help those singles, which will always be coming in from the world from outside to encourage them to follow the Lord, to be fit moms and dads and husbands and wives. And when the church looks out for itself and we're all doing what we're supposed to do, then we'll be helping those singles, those unmarried people become what God would have them to be so that they can live those lives that they need to live as leaders of the church and as moms and dads and husbands and wives in their homes. Well, we're out of time, so let's pray. Father, we thank you for what we learned in this text, and I pray that each of us would take it to heart, whether we be old or young, we fit in there somewhere. Father, I pray that all of us would just ask ourselves how we're living for you and what we're doing to encourage the singles that you have brought to us in this local body of believers to grow in the Lord. Of course, some have grown up in Christian families, and some might be described as older in their maturity, though they be young. And yet others who are older in age yet have recently come to the Lord and they don't know what it means to have a Christian family or to have a marriage that honors you and they need answers and we need to help them. So may all of us take responsibility to pray for, encourage and do our part to pursue holiness in the fear of you that you might be glorified, that your church might be blessed and your name be honored among the nations. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.